This is the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Blanc, episode 146. Let's do this. You're listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast, where we'll talk about all aspects of buying apartment buildings with a special focus on raising money from others. And now, your host, Michael Blanc. Hey there, and welcome to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Blank. Today, it's going to be all about financing. Now, it's one of those things that a lot of people don't think about until it bites them in the butt, right? So case in point, you know, they, they spend a lot of time finding a great deal, raising money, and then they don't get the financing. Why? Right? Because, well, they discovered in due diligence that there's actually more than 25% uh, student population in, in the property and it reduces the loan to value from 80% down to 65%. Uh-oh, now the deal doesn't work anymore. And these are some of the mistakes that I see frequently where people just don't focus on the lending side. They don't know what they need to do up front and they're making all these mistakes that are easily preventable. So I want to solve this problem today by having John Brixen on the call. John Brixen is with uh, Old Capital, Old Capital, billions of dollars of loan. They're based out of Texas. Uh, I interviewed uh, Michael Becker in episode 64, went from zero to 1,000 units at the time. Now he's at 3,000 plus. And he's also got a fabulous podcast that you guys should check out if you're at its Old Capital podcast. Anyway, so John works with Michael on this stuff. So we're going to dissect the multifamily investing. We're going to talk about what kind of properties are the, the best multifamily. Should you do value add? Should you do bridge loans? If so, what should you consider in bridge loans? Fannie, Freddie, local bank, regional bank lending, and most importantly, what are some of the mistakes to avoid in financing? Let's get right into the show here with John Brixen. Here we go. John, welcome to the show. Hey, Michael. Thanks for having me. How are you? Really excited to have you guys uh, guys here. Uh, I interviewed Michael Becker a long, long time ago. Back when we started in, in Old Capital, I think it might have been two and a half years ago or so. So I'm really excited that you're here and about today's topic. Now, the, the burning question on everybody's mind before we get into all the various aspects of financing multifamily is, John, what are interest rates doing in 2019? Yeah. Um, you know, Obviously, there's been a lot of movement in interest rates, and a lot of people are asking that, that same question. Just over like the last quarter of 2018, we saw the 10-year Treasury move from you know around 2.85% all the way up to 3.2%, and then it swung down as low as 2.55, 2.6, and I mean that's a pretty significant move in interest rates. And a lot of these loans on multifamily properties are financed with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and Fannie and Freddie they they benchmark most of their loans are benchmarked on that 10-year treasury. So that movement in interest rates had a pretty significant impact on the market for a lot of buyers. Uh, a lot of people are under contract while there was that big swing in rates. So it was, it was hard to predict and hard to kind of understand, you know, what kind of LTV will I qualify for? You know, what's my property really worth? So that's what's happened in the past. What's happened in the future, it's, it's more difficult. You know, I don't have the old, you know, the crystal ball. Um, but what I would say is, you can't predict where rates are going, but you can be ready for movement in rates. And the best way to do that is to lock in long-term fixed rate financing rather than having you know a shorter-term floating or variable rate interest rate on, on your loan. Yeah, I think we're definitely going to talk about that in, in the various loan products that are out there because we do have to be a little bit uh, uh, mindful of where the market cycle is and we don't want to have in any kind of three-year arms or anything like that unless there's a darn good reason for it. Well, that's before we get into some of these some of these products here, one of the questions I get a lot is, hey, should I be working with 
you know, with a direct lender or an intermediary. Uh, and I, I have an opinion on that. We, we've kind of done both a little bit. But what is your opinion on that? What, which one, maybe you do both or one's better? Or what, what's your advice? And what is an intermediary versus a direct lender? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, direct lender is really just going directly to the bank and arranging your financing or arranging your loan on your own and not working with an intermediary, which also might be called a broker. So really the role of an intermediary is they are an expert on financing. So they do dozens of these loans per year. They don't do just one or two loans per year. And so really you work with an intermediary, not just to get the highest loan proceeds or the lowest interest rate, but the intermediary really saves you a lot of time. They keep your, your loan closing on track and on pace to close. Uh, most purchase and sale agreements that I see in multifamily, you know, typically it's a 60-day contract with you know one or two 15-day extension options. And if you go out and you know shop your own loan and wait until you're under contract to approach lenders, you run the risk of getting off track in terms of, of timing. And so, an intermediary can keep your closing on track. Uh, they close. I mean, our group at least. We closed over a billion dollars in financing last year. And so we are the largest customer and the largest client for a lot of these large Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac lenders. And so if we run into a, a difficult situation or if we need to uh, get something done you know, quickly, they're more responsive to us because we're their largest client. And so you know, I would say there's a lot of things in life where it makes sense to save a few dollars and, and do it yourself. But I would say financing an apartment property, or especially if it's your first, one of your first multifamily properties, it, it makes a lot of sense to work with an expert to ensure that you have you know, the best execution. Yeah, I can echo that because one of the first properties we did was uh, it was through a broker and it was through a bank. And at the last minute, the committee rejected the loan for no reason at all. And because it was a broker, obviously that person had a variety of relationships and was able to bring someone in very quickly and replace that versus had I gone directly with that bank, I probably wouldn't have had the fallback position. And also I find that brokers have or intermediaries have a wide variety of products, which I want to talk about as well. So if you have the agency, but you also have bridge lenders and, and a variety of other loans as well. So let's start talking a little bit about the kind of asset types and then the kind of uh, the best kind of financing for that. So so in the multifamily world, so what, what kind of properties do you feel are best for investors to focus on and, and why would you say that? Sure. Um, and a lot of the investors that are listening to this podcast, I'm sure are looking to acquire their first or second or third multifamily family property, maybe they're looking to scale up. So in terms of what's the best type of property, you know, I guess I'll say a few types that I would say I would recommend maybe potentially avoiding. So I would say the first is, you know, four units and below is is not multifamily. That's going to be single family. So what does that mean? That means that your valuation is going to be capped. It's going to be based on sales comparables. So it'll be based on what properties in your area have sold for regardless how much you increase the income, increase the NOI, your, your upside and your valuation is limited, right? And, and you know that, Michael. I mean, uh, multifamily is so great because you can force appreciation. Same thing goes on the lending side for four units and below. Your borrowing capacity is limited to the value of the property, which is based on the sales comparison approach, but also your own personal credit, your personal financial wherewithal. So number one, I would say target multifamily, which is going to be five units and above. The second thing about multifamily and what also makes it great is multifamily has some of the best sources of 
permanent. And by permanent, I mean long-term financing available for properties that are stabilized and cash flowing. And that's Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Uh, there's no Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac in the self-storage space for hotels, for office, industrial, et cetera. Just multifamily has that government-sponsored financing, which is you know just terrific financing for, for multifamily investors. And Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, their minimum loan size is is typically a million. They might be able to go slightly below a million with some some exceptions, but really I would say it's a million dollars. And so if you're buying your first multifamily property on your own, you want to target a property that's worth, you know, at least I always say 1.5 million is kind of a good target to shoot for on the acquisition. Or if it's not worth 1.5 million, there's a path to where it could eventually be worth 1.5 million if you can force enough income appreciation and, and rent growth. You know, you can buy a 12 unit property for $300,000 and maybe you increase the value to $700,000 and that's great, but the property is not large enough to qualify for Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. And so, you know, your refinance will be with a bank and, you know, bank financing, there's certainly a space for bank loans where it makes sense to finance with banks, but for a property that's stabilized and cash flowing, if you can qualify for Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac financing, you know, it's great. And then the last piece, Michael, would be if for those that are interested in just jumping straight into syndication or maybe they're looking into scaling up into syndication, that's definitely a way you can go. I would recommend, you know, having a good team, uh, working with a mentor like Michael Blanc or, or you know, Michael Blanc's group and, and getting education and then also, um, you know, finding other like-minded individuals that you can that you can partner with because these loans have certain requirements that can make it more difficult to qualify if you're just an individual trying to trying to syndicate. All right, so let's, that's a good point. Hold that thought on on trying to qualify for the Freddie and Fannie, which, which are by far the best loans because, gosh, they're cheap. You know, thirty year amortization, high loan to value, and most importantly, they're non recourse, meaning that you don't have to personally guarantee them. So, what you're saying is uh, keep the loan balance that are a million dollars or above, ideally to get those. Uh, so, before we kind of go down that track, if someone wants to do a smaller deal, let's say under a million dollars, and doesn't qualify for Fannie or Freddie, what are some of the options for a person that wants to finance a smaller deal? So I'll walk you through a quick case study on someone that I worked with earlier this year where uh, they financed with a bank loan, they went in, they did the rehab, they forced the rental appreciation, and then they, they, they did a significant cash out refi uh, once they had increased the value. So this was a property in Seattle. It was a seven unit property. They purchased it for a million dollars in July of 2017. Uh, they spent $200,000 on doing a complete renovation. It was all three-bedroom, two-bath, uh, townhome-style units. And they increased the value. So they, they financed the acquisition and the rehab with a bank loan with the local credit union. And they completed the renovation in July of 2018. They leased all seven units up right away. The rents were significantly higher. They did a great job on the rehab. They increased their total cost was 1.2 million. They increased the value to about 1.8 or 1.9 million. So then, in November of 2018, we closed a Freddie Small Balance cash out refinance for this property of 1.4 million. So they had a they had a cost of 1.2. We financed it at 1.4 million in November of 2018. So they pulled out. Uh, recourse, 20-year amortization to 30-year amortization. Uh, you know, it's just a great deal for them. So that's a case study where 
if the property doesn't quite qualify for Fannie or Freddie in its current state because it's either not large enough or it's not stabilized, in that case, you can finance with the bank and then do a cash out refi within 12 to 24 months. Yeah, that's a great case study. And so, so what that means is that they got uh, a bank loan through a credit union. They probably had to uh, personally guarantee that loan. And that's okay, right? I mean, first first deal, it is what it is, right? I just I don't want to personally guarantee tens of millions of dollars of loans. But my gosh, do your first or second deal, especially when you finance like that. Your local or regional banks are, are absolutely the way to go. So that, that's kind of like a, a bridge loan. Let's talk about a little bit about bridge loans and these value-add deals. Because sometimes even some of the larger deals... Freddie Fannie loans require what you call a stabilized property. Can you talk about what that means? And, and if a property does not meet that criteria for stabilized, what, what are some of the options that people have to find to get into that deal, to get into that value add opportunity? Sure. So in the eyes of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, it needs to say the property is less than 90%. Your main option for, for lending is going to be a bank loan or any other uh, financing sources that can offer what's called a bridge loan. So a bridge loan is what that is, is a loan for a property that, you know, is not quite stabilized. So let's say your occupancy is 80%, 70%, 50%. Maybe it's owned by a mom and pop operator that doesn't have any kind of financials on the property. Uh, There could be significant deferred maintenance, could be all of the above. So what a bridge loan will allow you to do is to, they'll finance the acquisition, you know, maybe up to 75 to 80% of the acquisition. Some Bridge lenders may finance part of the rehab, and so basically they'll they'll allow you to uh, finance the property when it's not stabilized. Go in, increase the value through leasing up units or investing capex into the property, increasing rents, and then once you've executed on your business plan and the property is stabilized, you could then do either sell the property or you could do a cash out refinance with Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. What are some of the terms that you're seeing on bridge loans and then compare that to Freddie or Fannie? Yeah. So the, the main sources for bridge loans are going to be either banks. And so bank term, loan terms for banks, you know, for, for smaller properties, you know, say loan amounts of less than 5 million, they will go up to 75% LTV. They'll typically require that there's a, a full, you know, full personal guarantee. So these are full recourse loans. And, you know, in terms of the interest rates, you know, from what I've seen, I would say around mid five percent, you know, f- around five point five percent could be could be lower or higher, just depending on the market, strength of the sponsor, uh, et cetera. The other source of bridge loans is going to be non re course bridge lenders which a lot of times are you know are what are called debt funds and these are groups that have raised money from large investors and instead of buying properties they're going out and lending on properties and getting their return that way and you know with debt funds it they really are there's not as many options available on the non-recourse side for smaller uh, multifamily properties so less than three million there's just not as many options I'd say once you get above kind of the five, five to ten million dollar loan size, um, they can offer they can offer larger loans. And so uh, we just closed a bridge loan uh, with a debt fund. It was about a twelve million dollar bridge loan, and they're at eighty percent of cost. So they financed eighty uh, percent of the purchase price and then part of the rehab. And they were the, their interest rate on that was it was a thirty day LIBOR plus. 
3.35%. And so all in, the interest rate was about 5.5%. And it was a three-year term with three years of interest only. And then they had a couple of different extension options. So that's great. And I just want to highlight the thing about bridge loans is they're, they're great. But as we're going into a market with a bit more uncertainty, going to bridge loan also brings a certain amount of risk to it. Uh, maybe we can, we can just talk about that from that perspective. So in that perspective, what should someone be thinking about from a, going into a bridge loan and how do they mitigate their risk with regards to, to the bridge? assuming there's maybe a softening of the market. Sure. Um, what I would tell you about bridge loans is, is you're right. They are inherently more risky. And part of the reason why is because they're shorter term loans. And so, you know, if you're doing a bridge loan, either with a non-recourse debt fund or with a, a bank, you know, a full recourse bank loan, those are shorter term loans. So you could have a maturity in year two or year three. And then when, when your loan matures, it might not be, it might be in the middle of a recession. And during the middle of a recession, you know, lenders just aren't lending. And so you could be in a situation where you have to refinance your loan, but there's just not as many uh, lending options out there available. So, you know, that's, that's the first thing. And, uh, you know, I'd say the key to people that, that are good candidates for bridge loans and borrowers that are good candidates, I would say is uh, it should be someone that's more experienced and has, you know, some multifamily experience and significant amount of experience and, or, you know, if you don't have experience, you should have you and your key principal should have a significant uh, kind of financial wherewithal relative to the loan amount. Right. So if you're doing a million dollar bridge loan as a borrower, you know, it, it probably wouldn't make sense if, let's say, you and your partner had a combined net worth of $900,000 and, you know, not much cash in the bank. But if you're doing a million dollar bridge loan and, you know, maybe you have, you know, a significant net worth and significant cash relative to that loan amount, then, then it could make sense. So I would say the key mitigating factors for bridge loans are either experience, um, personal, financial wherewithal, or both. And I would add uh, a number of extensions because what has sometimes happened is you're executing on a value add uh, deal and your loan, you know, your loan is due in 18 months and you behind schedule and you can't refinance out. So either you have to refinance to a bridge, which kind of stinks, or you miss the term entirely if there's no extension. So having one or more extensions, in my opinion, is, is, is key. The other thing also, you mentioned um, a loan to cost. So loan to cost is when you're financing part of a construction of the construction of that. And a lot of people don't understand how that works because it's not like you get, let's say you have a $500,000, you know, capital expenditure plan and you, let's say you get $400,000 out of finance. It's not like the bank gives you $400,000 cash and put in your bank account. Can you talk about how the lender handles any kind of loan proceeds that are earmarked for uh, capital expenditures and improvements? Sure. Yeah. So the lender will finance part of the purchase price at, at close. So, you know, let's say you're, you're buying the property for $10 million. Uh, they might provide you with an $8 million loan at close. And then let's say you're budgeting $400,000 for rehab on the property. And, you know, this would be, this would certainly be a pretty um, attractive bridge loan, but they might finance, let's say they're financing the entire amount and they're going to provide you all the funds you need for your rehab. Well, what the lender will do is they'll fund the $8 million at close and then that $400,000 they will hold on to 
And as you go through and you do the work, uh, you know, you do the work on the parking lot or you maybe you replace the roofs or you upgrade the interiors, usually once a month, you'll go back to the lender. You'll submit what's called a draw, a draw request where you're showing proof that the work has been done. Here are the invoices. The lender may or may not send out an, an inspector to go look at the work that's been done and verify that it's there. And then, you know, once they sign off on it and approve it, then they will fund that draw request. And that's usually once a month. So let's say under the $400,000 CapEx budget you described, let's say it takes me 10, uh, 10 months to do. So theoretically, I'm spending $40,000 per month and I'm doing these 40,000 draws. Will the lender pay the, uh, so I'm talking about the invoicing. So you get the invoice, let's say for the parking lot. Do you need to raise enough money to fund that $40,000 invoice? Uh, to pay off that vendor and then retrieve it from the lender, or can you give that invoice directly to the lender so you don't you don't need another? What I'm saying is you don't need another forty thousand dollars extra in the bank to make all that work. Yeah, typically the lender can can pay the contractors directly, like in, in and that's huge. By the way, just just if you guys you know, get get that right, because otherwise you would have to fund the cash flow for a month or two. Otherwise, you get into a position where uh, you can't get the work done. You don't have the money yet, and the lender won't release it until you've actually done the done the work. So, <laughs> chicken and egg problem. Right. So, we talked about a couple a couple of mistakes that people make, and I think one on the bridge loan is number one, even getting into a bridge loan in the first place, and number two, not having extensions in place. What are some of the other mistakes that you see uh, people make with regards to financing? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that's important with uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac loans is is the prepayment penalty. It's something that you need to be well aware of, you know, going into the loan. One of the benefits of doing a bank loan or doing a bridge loan is that the prepayment penalty is much lower, right? So if you go in and you increase the value and you want to sell the property or you want to do a refi in year three or year two or year three, it's much easier and much less expensive to pay off that loan. Uh, a bank might have a 1% prepayment penalty. They might have no prepayment penalty at all. It's not really the same with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. So, you know, with Fannie Mae, their loans are typically yield maintenance. And so a yield maintenance prepayment penalty, what that does is it, it guarantees the lender that they get all of their interest payments as if you're paying the loan or you're holding on to the loan throughout the entire maturity. And the way they account for that is they will take the net present value of all remaining interest payments on the loan. And so... If you pay off your loan in year, if it's a 10-year loan and you pay it off in year four, they're going to take the net present value of all the remaining interest payments over the next six years. And so it's not impossible to prepay a loan with a yield maintenance prepay payment penalty, but it's, it's much more expensive. The other option, and this is what's a nice feature of, of the Freddie Small Balance program, is Freddie Small Balance will allow you to do what's called a step-down uh, prepayment penalty. And so what a step down prepayment penalty is, is it's it's a percentage of the loan amount that's on this declining schedule over the, the loan term. So with Freddie Mac, you can do what's called you know a five-year hybrid where your loan or your prepayment is five, four, three, two, one, or five percent in year one, four percent in year two, three percent in year three, etc. Uh, much more predict predictable, usually much less expensive. And you know, the benefit, so the next question I guess would be, well, why would anybody elect to do a yield maintenance type prepay? Well, the benefit is, is that the yield maintenance prepayment structure really is for the lender's benefit. And so the lender will offer a lower interest rate for that yield maintenance prepayment option. So a lot of investors, they will, 
or some investors, you know, and I think it can be a mistake is they'll say, well, I'm looking at two different options. I have the step down prepay or the yield maintenance. Well, I'm going to go with the yield maintenance prepay, even though I want to hold this property for three to five years um, because the yield maintenance option is offering a lower interest rate. It's higher loan proceeds, et cetera. So I think it's important to think about your exit and think about what your plan is for the property and how you, you know, if you want to sell it, if you want to refinance it and when you want to do that. So it's a good point. Let's talk about the exit a little bit more. So let's say my hold period is five years. I have a 10-year you know, Fannie or Freddie loan on there. What kind of prepayment penalty then are you are looking at number number one? Is that the, is that the step down where at, at the end of the five years, there is no prepayment penalty? Right. If you do a step down, you can certainly structure it in a way where there is no prepayment penalty at the end of five years. You know, and then with, with let's say, so if you're doing, so one of the benefits of, of Fannie Mae is, is Fannie Mae will allow what's called a supplemental loan. And so what that really is, is that's the second lien on, on the property. And so if you buy a property, let's say you have a 10 year, you buy a property with a 10 year loan and you acquire the property, you go in, you increase the value in year five, uh, you've increased the value enough so that your existing loan on the property is about, let's say it's 60% of the value. Well, what you can do is you can go back to the lender or actually if you're selling the property, the buyer, they can assume the existing loan that's at 50% of value, 50 or 60% of value. They can go to the lender and they can get what's called a supplemental loan. And that will allow you to go up to 75% LTV and down to a 1.30 debt service coverage ratio. And the interest rate on those supplementals is typically higher, but in a rising rate environment, you know, maybe your original loan, the rate is, you know, well below market. And so your blended rate ends up being, you know, actually pretty attractive. And so I've been seeing more and more supplemental loans, you know, over the past six months. It's been, you know, pretty popular lately. Well, they are going to be very popular. Think about an environment where maybe interest rates are going up in five years, whatever they may be. And you have a loan at, you know, 5.1% or whatever, or whatever the case may be. And so someone assumes that loan and gets a supplemental, they're going to be better off than possibly getting something at a higher interest rate. So getting, locking in these low rates now is, is, is good, is fantastic. Any other mistakes that you, um, that you see people making in financing? You know, I would say not thinking about the exit beforehand. Yeah. Other, other mistakes I would say are just, um, you know, people just overlooking or not looking into agency financing options out there. I mean, there's people that own multifamily properties that think their property wouldn't qualify for an agency loan when really, you know, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac will end in almost any market in the country. I mean, last year I closed loans in markets as small as uh, St. Cloud, Minnesota, which is, you know, 70,000 people. Um, all the way to Seattle. I'm working on one in Los Angeles right now. I'm closing a loan in Abilene, Texas. And so um, I would say get your lender involved early and often and reach out to them. And that, that's kind of my next point, mistakes that, that investors make is they will wait until they have an accepted LOI or they'll wait until they're actually under contract before they reach out to their lender. And you know, a lot of times that's too late in the process. When should people engage with you on that, on that note? Yeah, I mean, I would say you want to reach out to the lender before you even submit your offer or your LOI on a property because really, you know, the loan, it, it can be 75 to 80% of the total funds needed to, to fund the acquisition. So the loan can make or break your deal. And you might spend a lot of time underwriting the property, uh, doing, you know, diligence in the property. You might fly across the country and actually tour the property, submit your offer. 
And then only to find out once the property has been accepted that the property, you know, you had underwritten 75 or 80%, you know, loan to value when you underwrote the acquisition and you find out that the property only qualifies for 60 or 65% loan to value. So then you have very different returns. You know, now the deal doesn't really pencil out. And so I would say, you know, engage me or any other lender you're working with as early as possible. And if there's a property you think might look interesting that you might want to acquire, might send an offer on, you know, reach out to reach out to us to Little Capital and you know, see what kind of terms the property could qualify for. So that's great, uh, John. How can people connect with you if they're working on a deal and uh, and want to get more information? Yeah, so my phone number is uh, 913-638-8871. And my email is jbrickson, that's J-B-R-I-C-K-S-O-N, at oldcapitallending.com. That's awesome, John. I appreciate you coming to the show and talk all about uh, multifamily financing. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. So make sure that you start building a relationship with two key players right from the start. Number one is your property manager. That's most important, right? Because that property manager is going to help you evaluate deals. That's super important. And as soon as you have that person locked in, have one or more good brokers uh, working for you because they're so key, as, as John said, so key as part of the process as you get in to make sure that your underwriting is correct and you understand what the lender's underwriting requirements are. And a good broker can help you with that. They can say, hey, for value add deal, it's going to look like this. For stable, it's like this. You current uh, general partnership, you and your buddy are not going to be enough. You have to add another another sponsor, things like that. So in other words, you do financing is that you don't want to worry about financing. You worry about raising money and doing due diligence, but financing, don't worry about that. The problem is a lot of pines that it just blindsides people because they're not paying attention to it. So make sure that you build a relationship with your lender right up front. And that's, these mistakes, they, they they kill me. Another another one that killed me just recently, someone someone just told me, you know, they lost $21,000 on a deal. And I was like, how can you, what happened? Well, the deal didn't close. I was like, okay. So it was a lot of risk capital involved in the deal. And he was describing what was going on. And, and what he was doing is he was, he was making all these mistakes, like multiple mistakes, that could have been easily prevented instead of $21,000, maybe at most it would have cost him $2,000 on attorney fields for the contract. But those are just some examples that just kill me. Like it, they just kill me. And so, you know, if, if you're doing maybe larger deals or you want to accelerate the deals that you're doing, then I encourage you to check out uh, our mentoring program. It's the michaelblank.com forward slash mentor. And uh, yes, there's a definitely investment in yourself to go with our mentoring program, but these are the kind of mistakes that you want to avoid. I mean, uh, yes, you're going to make an investment in, in a mentoring program, but you're going to avoid these kinds of mistakes and not lose your shirt. That's key. So check out the michaelblank.com forward slash mentor and uh, set up a free strategy session. We'd love to talk to you about that. Again, guys, my mission is to help you guys become financially free with real estate. That's why I wrote this book, Financial Freedom with Real Estate Investing. That's really my passion. And I do believe that financial freedom isn't a very important step to the path of living a life of significance. So to give you an example, I was at the Real Estate Guys uh, Conference uh, and it was a goal-setting retreat. I went there with my wife and it was fabulous. I highly recommend it. Do it once a year. Totally different what the Real Estate Guys do. But there, I was sitting next to a guy, really nice guy. His name was Brian. And uh, he was talking about his passion about inner city mission that, that he has. And he'd been working on it for, for years, really, really excited. But his biggest problem is he says, I can't work on it. Because I'm working a job, which is fine. He's got to provide for his family, but you can see the passion. I said, Brian, would it help if you had enough passive income to to work on this mission full time? He goes, oh my gosh, 
Absolutely. So that's how we got on the conversation around multifamily investing. And yes, you can be the syndicator. You can find a deal and you can bring it to us or you can passively invest or you can help us raise money. In this particular case, he had some a little bit of money. He can invest passively, but, but really he can help raise money. So if your talent and passion is helping raise money, then do that and, and help us raise money. And in doing so doing, you, you build up equity and passive income. So what I'm saying is financial freedom is you can't ignore the finance part of it, right? So there's, there's always a destiny, a purpose, a passion in all of us. And, and many times we can never live that out because we're working 50 plus hours a week. So this is why financial freedom is so important. Yes, it's great to quit your job and go on vacation, but what's really, really important is that it opens you up to thinking about a life of significance. And that's really what drives me. So anyway... I'll leave you with that. Uh, Thanks so much for listening. I'll catch you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Block. For more free podcasts, articles, and videos, go to themichaelblanc.com. There, you can also download the free ebook, The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building. Till next time.